0: Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of restaurantowner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Here are your hosts, Barry Schuster and Chris Tripoli. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Corner
1: Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli. And I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine.
0: And Barry, today we're going to take a trip to Temple, Texas, where we've got a couple of sisters that have been working very hard together with a concept, a bakery cafe concept, to explain to us exactly how it started, how it expanded, and how it's such a busy, active, significant portion of the community there. So welcome, Holly. Welcome, Megan, to the Corner Booth.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: So ladies, tell us about your concept and what got you involved in restaurant business. and What's your path there?
3: So our concept is, like Chris said, we have a bakery in-house. So we do farm-to-table scratch cooking. We only serve breakfast and lunch, so close at 3 p.m., which that has fluctuated since the beginning. We have gone back and forth on our hours and finally just stuck with the like traditional brunch. Time. <laughs> we are very involved in the local community using farmers. We try to keep in contact with as many different facets of the community in our area as we can. Like at the beginning of COVID, we were taking food to hospitals and stuff like that. Just as Chris knows, our concept would not be open if we weren't so supported by our local community. So we just try to stay as involved with them as possible. We started, it was just a flicker of our dad's idea. He wanted to open a restaurant and he's a physician, so he thinks he knows how to do everything. And Nice
0: little slam to the medical community.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: so he will very much say, you know, I'm a surgeon. I know. I know everything there is to know, and I can do this. And when I was a kid, I remember we would drive around, and there would be an empty building, and he would just go, "Look at that. That would be the perfect spot for a breakfast restaurant. Like we can open up those windows, and everybody can have the nice morning sun coming in, and We'll just all sit around and kumbaya, this breakfast <laughs> type of place out of nowhere. And my mom was always very adamantly opposed to doing it. She used to joke with them like, well, you and your next wife that y'all can do that because I'm not going to have anything to do with that.
0: So a cooperative family <laughs> dynamic. right <from> the start. <laughs> so,
2: And then Holly has like 13 something years at Magnolia Cafe in Austin. And our dad just really wanted a local place like that here in town that he can go to. And through her, he was like, I can make this a reality. You know, it's not gonna be hard. How hard can it be? You know, you'll have one person flipping a pancake, one person flipping some (laughs) eggs, and there you go, you got (laughs) breakfast. And you know, the reality of the situation is we all know that is not what happens.
3: In a restaurant. <laughs> Not even in it's almost the smallest part of the restaurant. I guess
0: for our listeners, benefit, we're talking about Meg's Cafe. With the family history of starting it and the father's idea, maybe you can take us back to when, how many years has this been in existence and when did you actually get the idea going?
3: I think he first had the idea in like 2009. And that's the year that I have stuck in my head because I'm pretty sure the housing bubble burst at that time. And I remember sitting around his dining room table talking about taking money out of your retirement to open this restaurant. And I'm watching the news like this is the craziest idea I've ever heard. Like, why would you want to do this? We don't know what we're doing. But it started out as such a small and controlled idea, a small space, a 1900 foot space. And he wanted it so bad that he was ready to jump no matter what. And I had worked at Magnolia, like Megan said, for quite a number of years, and I had trained doing all of the different positions. And so he was like, oh, then clearly you know how to run a restaurant. Again, no, I did not know how to run a restaurant. I knew how to work in a restaurant. So he started looking at spaces and he was, I mean, he was so happy going over names. I mean, he did so much research and had so much faith in the project that I feel like it filled all of us up. Like we were like, yes, you're right. We can do this. Like, it doesn't matter what's going on in the economy. We're going to give something great to the city of Temple and Central Texas. But again, we thought it was going to be really, really small. So he finds a space that they're going to develop from the ground up and we sign a lease. And for about a year, the developer was just dragging us along on the property.
2: Mm -hmm. And during that year our middle sister, Jenny, and her husband, fiance at the time, decided that they also wanted to come back here and get more involved. And they are very more classically trained chefs, Um, went to pastry school in Chicago. And so from with the addition of them, it added on a bakery and kind of a little bit of a larger kitchen. uh, And uh, what started as a really small venture turned into this kind of beast of a project um, uh, and
3: blew up from there. Yeah. I feel I feel personally like the thing that changed it from this thing where that our dad had in his mind that he was going to stand at the front door and hey Joe, how you doing today with a cup of coffee and greet everybody that he'd known because they're this is their community he's been a physician here my mom grew up here so it was like i think he saw it as that and therefore that's what i saw it as this place that was going to be very contained it it wasn't going to be like magnolia cafe where i came from which is just a 24-hour train you couldn't stop if you wanted to and it was like this is doable we can do this and then the develop the developer finally fell out and we now had already taken our startup loan. We were making loan payments with zero business, zero grant. Like we had no building, we had nothing. Um, so at point it was like, okay, this is, we got to find a building. And he found a village in 4,400 square feet of a building with, so much seating space, and at this point, it was just like, "Oh, I think that we have made a mistake." I remember walking into the building the first time and just falling and being like, "There's no way this is." I don't know what I'm doing. At that moment, it hit me in the face that I have no concept of what I'm doing. I don't know. I don't know how I convinced you to convince me that this is a good <laughs> idea.
1: Well, you know, it's, inter- it's interesting. um you had experience in a restaurant. There are a lot of people get into this and really don't have a clue. They've eaten in restaurants. And so I I have a hard time discounting that experience. I've got to believe you brought something really important to the project. And I'm really interested in where the gaps were. I think that's going to be educational for people thinking about doing what you're doing. Oh, I've worked in a restaurant 13 years. I can do this. And you're telling us, you know, there's more to doing this successfully than actually having worked in the restaurant. And and by the way, my dad was a surgeon, too. And there's a certain fighter pilot mentality, but you don't open up people without some confidence, let alone a restaurant. So anyway, tell us us about what, you know, you you had some, uh, you had a pastry chef come on board. And that's important because you had some expertise there. But I want to hear about you know, what you knew going into this that was really useful and what where the gaps were and then what you did to kind of close those gaps so you felt like hmm, I got a handle on this.
2: I can definitely shed some light on that. Um, I was not a part of the business in the beginning. Um, they kept asking me, oh you sure you don't want to be a part of the restaurant? And it's just like I have, you know, I was a waiter all through college, but I I don't know anything about food. I'm not experienced in that. I just don't have anything to add. And, um, so they went full steam ahead and, uh, opened the restaurant and I was there waitressing on the opening weekend. And every weekend I was living in San Antonio at the time, I would come back to temple and help work the weekend shifts because they were the hardest ones to uh, fill with staff wise and things. And, uh, we got about three months into the business being open and I got a phone call from my dad. And he just wanted me to cry. (laughs) But he was like, your sisters need help. They are drowning. They're tired. They're sleeping on the banquettes in the restaurant. Because with the bakery, um, you know, you start baking bread overnight. And there's no experience of any bakers in this town when we opened. So it was training every single person how to make hand-formed artisan breads with no knowledge of how to do any of it. Um, So uh, dad said, you know, your sisters need help. Your sister Holly just paid an $11,000 bill and has no idea how much money is in the bank account.
3: (laughs) I I didn't even, (laughs) I literally didn't know how to run books for a business. Mm I mean, I could cook a... Twelve hundred dollar hour on an egg station, and I could prep and wash any Mm -hmm. dish or talk to customers. I could make schedules, I could make orders, but I could not. I didn't know the first thing about about books. I didn't Mm -hmm. know. I didn't even know how to balance a checkbook, other than you know, like a simple one that you have for yourself. A restaurant, any business is just that is such a huge job, and I was trying to general manage. And run the books. And I, like, preceding my dad calling her, I called my dad, and I will never forget that call. And I was just like, I can't do this. I, I hate to tell you this, but we're drowning. I'm drowning.
0: And that was after, that was in the initial stages, that was like month three.
3: Yeah, about month three.
0: And and you know that, uh, you know, Barry, that sounds like sort of a familiar gap where if you have people that are uh, are experienced, you're an experienced worker, so it doesn't surprise me that the people side of it, the scheduling side, the egg station, the running the kitchen, uh, that is overwhelming in itself, but that you felt comfortable in. And oh, yeah people do fail to realize that there is an actual business there's mm-hmm. a business side there's financial planning there's book work there's purveyor negotiation and it can be overwhelming if you haven't done it before
3: yeah like yeah that's a good point even I remember reading all of the the agreements with the purveyors and just being like I mean I can read I read but setting up ACHs and deciding which one is the better plan, and I'm getting yelled at to come back over here because this is on fire. It's just like, I have no, I literally just felt like, like I, and I'm sure that everybody involved at that time, it's like you just begin to feel like you're just failing, which is all it's already hard to open a business, it's hard to open a restaurant, and then when you're just getting beat down, and that's I. I know that the first year of any business is going to be very, very difficult, but I think that we missed that part of it. We missed the fact that we weren't just opening a restaurant. We were opening a business. Mm-hmm. And that's very, very important is to have a business partner or a business manager like that person keeps the lights on. I didn't, You could, if you had asked me that in the first three months, I literally had to call my mom one day and I was like, you to help me, I don't know. She brought me this ledger thing that looked like from an accountant's office. And I'm like, I don't know how to use it. I know how to use it now. I've learned a lot, but but then I had no clue. And it was scary. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what was the menu like at this time? What, uh, I mean, we all know that you went from 1,900 square foot simple idea to taking a second generation space that was 4,400. What did that do to the initial expectations of the concept menu, hours, style of service, etc.?
3: Oh, that didn't the that did not frighten the chef at all. Uh, he that nothing got paired back. Everything was still made. I mean, if he made a a cauliflower soup, it was like a cauliflower veloute. Like everything had so much love and energy, and the food was just out of this world, the food is still amazing because it was was given this base of, of, you know, Thomas Keller and all of the places that him and our sister had worked. I mean, they brought all of that to the menu, which, I mean, at that time, it was just it, it didn't work. It was, and I think that was one of the time, the first times that we called you, Chris, and probably both of us are in tears. <laughs> like we can't execute this. Like, what are we doing wrong? And you're on, you're like almost everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you didn't really say that, but that's, it was like, man, we are really just making this so hard on ourselves because we have these lofty ideas. And,
2: and we, we also went into a market, um, that was, uh, Fairly undereducated in the food world and scene. Um, you know, we had, I think, only two or three years prior to us opening, we got our first chilies. Uh, so we were coming into a place where we were having to tell people, you know, just just try it, try it. And I promise that you'll like it. And if you don't like it, I'll buy it for you. But please just try it and and, you know, get out of the Chicken fried steak thought process for just enough time to kind of give us a chance, and um, that definitely added to the struggles. In the beginning, was our food. You know, people told us, "Well, you're too fancy and you're too expensive." And it's like, "Well, it's it's eggs and it's sandwiches and soup and salads. It's it's not fancy. It's just different than what you're used to." But the breads um, are
3: called, you know, yeah. pan de and so it's, now on the menus, they say country bread. Instead of saying the traditional French name, we call it you yeah. know, rustic rustic French, country. country bread. Yeah.
0: So the concept, uh, the first impression that the consumer may have had is that you overshot the market a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. you, were, you were going into yeast roll country with artisan breads. And um, and you're at you were going into a lot of uh, chili um, home style uh, biscuits and gravy kind of chicken fried steak thing with artisan menus. Okay. Yeah,
3: I can't tell you how many times somebody would literally look me in the face and say, "You're never gonna make it if you don't have sweet tea." Guests would say, "Like, well, we don't have sweet tea. Like, we just there's sugar." I didn't understand. You know, I was like, just like. In the kitchen mentality was like this is the way we do it we do everything the long hard way it's the Meg's way we put a lot of love into it we didn't have salt and pepper shakers in the beginning because the chef wanted our food to be seasoned perfectly and that's such a feat to ask of a team when you're pushing out when you're you're seating 697 guests in eight hours. Is perfection, and that's what we thought we could we could give to the to the consumer. We thought we could give them perfection, and that's just, yeah, just crazy. and not not with the size
2: that we were. It it just was breaking us all down, and and um, we were just getting so much pushback of, well, I want sweet tea, you know, um, style that once we kind of let go and started to relax a little bit that um, from those ideas, then that's when it really started to take off. And it was like, okay, like we can find a common ground. We don't have to fight our customers to make them understand everything that they need to understand. It's okay. If they don't want to call the soup a what well, they can call it soup. Like they you can call it a creamy cauliflower. Yeah. Soup. It's the same soup. It's the same soup. <laughs> We're not changing the flavor profile. We're not changing what's in it. We're just going to give it a different name so that it's more approachable.
1: Is that mostly what you did across the board? I mean, you brought maybe the presentation in terms of the description down home without really saying, okay, well, we're just going to have chicken fried steak and, and, and something that you might get at a Waffle House because that's what people want. But essentially just changing the way that you presented it to them, is, am I getting that? Yes.
2: That's exactly right. We still wanted to be who we were But we needed to find a way to do that within the community that we're in. And also within ourselves too, to kind of let us off of the hook just a little bit from being, you know, chef's coats and, and, um, so fine dining style, but for breakfast.
3: So it, and I kind of feel like in the beginning, it's, it's like, I came from Magnolia Cafe, which is a 24 hour, just like a very, very busy place. They didn't give a lot of care to plating. Food's great. People eat there for 20 years straight. they got a great customer base. Um, it's a little bit on the rowdy end. And that was like what I was comfortable in. But I, I wanted to marry where Jenny, our sister, and her husband came from with that. It's like, we have to break out of these boxes. We're not a fine dining place. We're not Magnolia. We're not a rowdy punk rock place in Austin. It's like, we're here. We have to build a new box. And I remember talking with you, Chris, about that one time. And it was like, we had to just have the confidence that we had it right there. We had the idea right there, but we were always too scared to stand behind it. Because there wasn't a place that we could look at and be like, we're going to be like that place. There was no snoozes. There was no yoke, the Yolk and I. It was like, I mean, breakfast places were Denny's and IHOP. And we wanted to be something better. We wanted to be something better than that, but not corporate. And so it, I feel like it took us a while to find our identity and who we were. And that I feel like the day that that happened, it was like, oh, this is us we do have really great food. We have really, we have fine dining quality food that's executed, that has to be executed very quickly. So a lot of it goes into the prep of the food and how the food is put together. It can't just, I mean, you can't have, like, you can't be cutting your mise en place every morning or you got to get there two hours before. So it has to be stuff that can be prepped prior to, and that now we have dialed in. And that took, I would say until four years ago, I mean, went the first seven years, just banging our heads against the wall. And yes, we were doing well. Yes. We were building customers. Yes. We were participating in the community, but we hadn't found us yet. We always say like Meg's despite
2: how much we continued to try and mess up. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, we, There was with four of us inside the restaurant every single day. It was very hard because we all had different ideas of what Meg's was. We couldn't even agree within each other of the direction that the restaurant needed to end up going. And not that we were fighting or anything, but it was, we all just kind of had this in our minds of something different and what we wanted out from it. And, um, I think once we were able to find that unified idea, and, and you know, letting the restaurant kind of tell us what it wanted to be as well, um, that's when the group really
0: started. So we, um, we started from an, a position of being overwhelmed to a position, and as you said, it may have been seven years in the making of an awakening of finding a way of being able to have the balance to be who you wanted to be and yet operate easier and with a little bit more customer acceptance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't you tell the listeners what that entailed? How did that impact not just the preparation, how you did that a little simpler? Were there menu changes, day part changes, even the family dynamic? Uh, did roles and responsibilities have to change in order to get this awakening implemented correctly? Oh, Absolutely.
3: I think with the menu changes, like one one huge thing is we used to try to use the brunch services as a way to like if we brought in fish for the weekend because also one of the ignorant things that we did to be blunt was we did fine dining on Friday and Saturday nights because the building was so big, we had to pay the rent and it seemed insane to us that the restaurant was only gonna be open until three and then sit empty. And we didn't have money. we. I mean, we were scraping by. I'm glad I didn't have her job at that point because she was getting ulcers. Yeah. (laughs) So we did all of these things. So we used to print the brunch menu every Friday and Saturday night so that we wouldn't have food waste. That's that. How can the customers know what they want to eat? Because, you know, everybody knows what they want to eat when they're going to a restaurant. They know on the way there and then you get there and every Saturday and Sunday, there's a new brunch menu. And it's just like, this is, so that was gone. Um, We definitely, I think, took a lot of cues from the guests. Like, what are the things that they're buying a lot? What are the things that they're asking about? Um, We do board specials now, but that's the majority of where the chefs play is on the board. They, They get to make up their their omelet every morning they get to make up you know sandwiches if they want to do a board special which the sandwiches aren't just like a ham and cheese so that a lot of thought goes into those um and then our menus now only change seasonal so as soon as the produce all switches you know for the two weeks before we work on a new menu it usually comes out two weeks after we say it's going to but it still gets done (laughs) um so the menu definitely uh is I wouldn't say that it's simpler. But it's more
2: contained. It, it's you know, um, like Holly was saying, we listened to the customers, but we also stopped listening in some ways because we were trying to be everything for everyone. Um, you know, people wanted fine dining, and so we did that. People wanted regular dinner service through the rest of the night, so we would do that. And they wanted brunch, and they wanted bread, but they didn't want just bread. They wanted gluten-free and keto. And and so we were listening to everybody and we were doing something that went from here, you know, to just blowing it up. And so we scaled back a lot on all the different concepts that we had. Um, I I think, uh, Chris, it might've been you that you were like, you basically have three restaurants within this one restaurant. Um, You're, you're trying to do too much. And we were all at that point freaking out because I was like, there's no money in the bank account. Like everybody cannot buy one more stock of celery because I don't have the money to pay for it. So, um, yeah, once we pared that down, scaled it to where we found like our true identity and stuff, then, um, the and menu, so, the menu got a lot better from there.
3: Yeah. And it was kind of like, With what Megan, just to touch on what Megan was saying with the spending the money, we had no food costs, we had no, um, like, instead of using smoked Spanish paprika, we were using espalette. And that's a very, an espalette is a beautiful spice. It only makes sense if I have time to sit and tell you that it's a French patio pepper and explain it to you. But when I'm a server, I have three tables and those tables are flipping every 45 minutes. I'm not going to get to say, you know, this is an s um, It's not just a paprika, blah, blah, blah. The chef uses it because. And so it, you're spending the money with, there's no education going on. There's no appreciation of it. It's kind of just like you're throwing it away. And that, we spent so much money on, that's just one ingredient. We did so much of that using telecherry pepper and, and where it is a fine ingredient, and it is, it, it I mean, there it's great stuff. It just it, it kind of doesn't have a place in unless you again unless the servers have the time to talk about it. Just you just feel like you're wasting it. So that kind of stuff we started. It's like you we just the chef would just have to do some research and find something that tasted better. That you know. So again, that's more of the work in the background to kind of just work on the menu to make it again something that people can understand and I mean people would tell us they can't even read the menus and it's like okay because espalette is a scary I mean you know if you go to order a bottle of wine you're not going to order the bort minor unless you know how to say it you're going to order you're going to point to it so it's <laughs> like the way that people read it it matters the the way that they feel when they look at your menu that matters a lot and Um, you just have to kind of let your ego aside and just like, what is going to make these people comfortable? Cause that's our whole job is to feed them, make them feel safe, make them feel invited, make them, you don't want to make them feel stupid because they can't, they don't know what S, what S blood is. It's just, it's not worth it. That's not our, that's not the people. So, so that was huge. As far as restructuring, I think, um, our, our sister and her husband moved to New York um, to do other projects. And so Megan and I now are the only two family members in the cafe. So I've taken a bigger role in the kitchen, um, which is, is really nice because it's, it's just anybody who owns a business or works in it. Or owns a restaurant. Just the more you know about every single thing in that restaurant, including like where the drain pipes go, and you know how the hot water heater works, and who works on the roof, and it just it it you learn so much, and then and that with that knowledge you have power. You you then can look at something that somebody else like a cook could be doing this thing for five years. They do it this way. They do it this way. They do it this way. You do it one time. And you're like, why do you guys do it this way? And they're like, oh, because we've always done it that way. And it's like, oh, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. Let me tweak this. Let me move this from here to here. And it changes the world. So that part of being more involved in the kitchen has been huge. It's been very liberating for myself. And then I think I've also been able to give an outsider's opinion that they can't say no to.
1: <laughs> you you've maintained I'm still hearing you've maintained a lot of integrity in the quality of your food and it stands out in that regard and something that comes to mind in terms of your own marketing and promotion and you're probably familiar with her here in North Carolina Vivian Howard who put a restaurant in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina but people drive from Raleigh and Charlotte hours because now she has her own TV show so that or had her own TV show but my question in terms of the market you you, you believe in what you're doing you believe in the quality of your cuisine um, and your community tends to be look for something a little bit more familiar but are you getting patronage and guests from further away going wow I heard about these folks this is really cool I'm going to drive a little bit further because this is something that's unique and uh, and that that I that speaks to me. Is, is there any of that going on? Yeah,
2: we have a lot of regular customers who um, every either Saturday or Sunday um, they drive up from Austin. We have a lot of regulars from Georgetown. Uh, I was talking to one of our servers the other day, and she was like, "Oh, that's my customers from Arlington," and I was like, "Did you just see?" And she was like, yeah, they come once a month, they meet up, they have a friends in San Antonio. And so they drive down and they come, up, the other family members come up from San Antonio and they only meet here. And um, you, it, like we used to always say, like, we would have a whole group of people who, families, and as their families grew, you get to meet you know, first their first son, and then they have a daughter, and then now they're on their sixth kid. And you're just like, oh my gosh, you know, these are all some Meg's babies. They moved, you know, down to Corpus Christi. And every time that they're even remotely close, they come in and they're just like, look, here we are. Like, look how much our family's grown. And um, so we, it is nice that our reach has gone from just the central Texas and expanded outward. But I think that's just a testament to our customers talking about us even after they leave our area. Um, And then being on the I-35 corridor, we started, you know, we get the travelers going through and then people who commute all the time from Austin to Dallas, which I always make sure that they stop on the way to Meg's. And um, we have people shipping our breads to, their family members in Oklahoma and Nebraska and uh, places, and that's pretty cool that. When I'm working at a bakery cashier, they're like, oh, going, your bread's going to Nebraska today. It's like, okay, ship it really fast because there's no preservatives in it, so we don't want it to-
1: <laughs> <laughs> Are you doing retailing with your bakery? Um,
2: we, do, we have a retail counter um, for uh, some pastries and cinnamon rolls and muffins and things, and then uh, for all of our breads.
1: Okay. Now, not to discount your, your community, because as you noted, you said that your community is really what helped you get through the pandemic. And so you have a tremendous amount of support there. And um, that rarely happens by accident. Um, what are the things that you've done to, you know, be a good citizen and, and to the point where people want you to succeed and are going to go out of their way to help you to succeed?
2: I think our staff, um, that will make me cry. Um, yeah, they're just, everybody's really involved and the people that we've had, um, come to Meg since the very beginning, they have a sort of ownership on it as well. It's not the employees. Um, well, the employees and the customers. It's, it's not just our restaurant. It is their restaurant too. And so, you know, we get the customers who want to be involved in, not just our lives, but our, all of our staff's lives. And when we hire new people now, I always kind of tell them like, you know, our our customer base, they want to know you, they are going to ask what you did over the weekend and they want to know the honest answer. Don't just say it was fun and fine. Um, you know, they, they definitely just, they show up every single time. And when we say, you know, we're kind of at a loss as to what to do here, they arrive in droves and mm-hmm. just really help Holly and I push through, like, everything that's happened this last year and a half, and our, um, same for our servers and our staff, like, they like coming into work. They
3: We got lots of hugs. Yeah. So we <laughs> get <laughs> lots of hugs.
2: <laughs> we get a lot of
3: hugs, and we definitely need those hugs, so... I, yeah, and during the pandemic, they they would come in and buy gift certificates, buy like $500 gift certificates, and just say we'll use them later. Wow. But I think another thing it's like one of the things that we do is um, we have our farmer board, and so when the farmers bring any produce in, we put their name up on a board and and put what they had so that that when the tomato salad is really good it's like well we didn't grow the tomatoes dr poteet grew them and everybody can look up there and know oh dr poteet's my physician i didn't know he was a gardener or farmer so we try to to share that and with them because they in my opinion they did the hard work it's like we're just putting it on a plate making it look pretty um And then, yeah, I, I think that that was a huge thing. And I think that listening to people was really big, like, and taking their suggestions. Like we, if somebody comes in and is like, my grandmother made this soap bread or whatever, it's like, oh, we'll give it a shot. And then it's like, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But you communicate that with them. If there's this muffin that they wanted to try, or, you know, you just, you be present, you listen, you let them, I mean, like we were saying earlier, I mean, it's there for them, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so it's why not listen to them. And even when people complain, they'll, they'll call and they'll be like, Hey, um, I just wanted you to know, because I, I didn't want this to be happening and for you not to know that it was happening. Whether it was like the toilet paper wasn't refilled or they could be very mundane things, but they want us to know because they don't want their place to not be great. Mm -hmm. And it's like we get hundreds on our health inspections and we let everybody know that. And so it's like they hold us to higher standards, which on one side of the coin, it's kind of hard because they do get nitpicky, but they're doing it because they care. Mm-hmm. There are mm-hmm. ugly people out there who are going to say mean things, but for the most part, when the regulars are complaining, it's literally, they're just like, Megan, I just wanted you to know that when I got this bread, that the bottom of it was kind of burned and it's like, okay, well, the bottom of the oven was probably turned on too high. So it's, it's relevant stuff that then, I mean, they need to be thanked for that. Like, thank you for bringing that to our attention because we care
0: just as much as you do well this has obviously been a winning combination uh the approach of Uh, of loyal staff, the approach with steady customers, the idea of listening and properly responding. Because I don't think many restaurants would have, say, an 11-year run, where even though they had a tremendous amount of overwhelming difficulties at the beginning, could be doing growing numbers like you are, uh, that could be having as much success financially with only uh, limited hours than you had at one time when you were open uh, for night shifts. So, I mean, that says an awful lot.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that, that part blows my mind. Like, I, I, she clearly knows the numbers better. But wasn't it in last year during the pandemic, we did when we cut off the last two remaining dinners that we kept because the customers just wanted to eat spaghetti. And we didn't have the heart to be like, guys, you're going to have to go <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> And when the pandemic happened, it was like a reset button. Yeah. It was terrible. It was hard. I, I feel for everybody in this industry, I, it's hard to find anything good to happen. But what it did it hit a reset button? And we literally had to look at the business and be like, is this necessary? Because now we don't have an option. And we can't just open up on Friday and Saturday dinner Because this couple has been eating here on Friday night forever. We're going to have to call them and say, look, like when it gets opened back up, like we can't do it anymore. And when we did that, I feel like, again, another thing that just like, it just, we jumped forward. The business got so much healthier and so much more successful again, because we had, we were forced to look at it like it's live or die right now. Yeah. There is no being nice. There's no more nice. Like, either it gets done or we're closed. And that was the most frightening. I just, I, any everybody in this industry knows exactly what yeah. we're saying. <laughs> but that was like being stuck in mud and drowning. It was just like, what are we going to do? And it was like, we're just going to get, like we had talked about it a million times, Chris, it's like we get mean and lean, like we do the things that we're good at, we do them really well, and we cut out all the crap, there's no more, like we cannot do it anymore, and that's what we did over the pandemic, and the numbers show it, we were healthier during the pandemic than we were the prior year.
1: Wow. um, what, what are your plans for expansion, or are you just trying to keep status quo? Or are you looking to the future in what the next big thing would be? Um, maybe it's just in your existing unit or, you know, another
2: unit. Um, yeah, right before the pandemic had hit, we had actually been um, looking at leases for expansion um, in the the Waco markets and the Georgetown markets. Um, we had, you know, two buildings that we were getting very close to signing a lease on and the deal would fall through. And um, then when March of last year hit, we just kept looking at each other I going, thank God. So we are, had just kind of decided, uh, you know, maybe three weeks ago that it's like, give us just a little bit more time. Um, we're tired. Um, let's, Take a minute and and regroup, and then start to look for another building. Uh, you know, towards the fall of this year, um, and then you know this week has happened with the Delta variant, and now we're kind of going back uh, to where we were at the beginning, at the start. And so, um, I think that right now our goal is just to survive and keep thriving, and. Um, you know, keep getting the ideas for those future concepts because we definitely want to expand. Um, It just needs to be the right time to do that. We don't want to make the same mistakes of going too big without knowing what we're doing and, um, you know, through all the TRA conferences and everything that we've been. And when you talk to people who had multiple concepts, they say opening your second restaurant is just as hard as opening your first and then your third is a little easier. And by the time you've got four, then it becomes a thing, you know, pretty Standard, but your second one is just as hard as your first one. So, um, there have been way too many shifts where I'm an overnight baker or I'm the bakery cashier or I'm the host or I'm in the dish pit and Holly's in the kitchen and it's just we're both looking at each other going well how you know we can't be management and working at three o'clock in the morning So Makes sense. And that's due to the labor shortages
3: that right. I'm sure everybody's mm-hmm. feeling right now. I was going to ask
0: about to that. Yeah. You know, yeah, me too. The um, Especially since you brought up expansion, which might be a wonderful thing when you are ready because you're in a market segment, um, that higher check average, the local, the farm to table, the slightly better casual uh, surroundings is a good market to be in. But having said that, the successful people who grow know that you can't grow uh, from um, from a weak uh, point of view of, of bench strength. So you, you have to have a strong team when you're ready to grow. So how are you handling the labor market right now uh, with shortages in your staff?
2: It's, it's hard, but I think that the the best thing that we've done is we said, you know, I would rather work the shift. That have somebody that doesn't care work it. Um, so that's kind of brought in a level of, you know, camaraderie, like, uh, among our staff. If there's somebody that doesn't end up fitting very well, or they just don't
3: want to pay attention
2: to detail, or they're not as clean as we want people at, that work at MEGS to be, you know, Sometimes if we don't even really have to say anything, the other staff members will be like, look, you know, if you're not going to clean it, why are you here? I'd rather do it for you than, than have you do it. So um, we have created a like a, a like a family. I mean, I know that that's probably very cheesy to say, but uh, the people that we have at the restaurant, the majority of them have been there for two or three years. Yeah. Um, we have some people who have been with us for 10 years um we have some that have been there i mean five years so they know who we are they know what we're about they know that holly and i are gonna always try and put them first before everything else and um and that's definitely helped i think with the labor we're not struggling i mean not that we're not struggling but we're not struggling as some of as much as some of the
3: neighboring restaurants around us are struggling. We were two months ago. Yeah. So I would say like tangible, like helpful information, like coming out of that, the Mm -hmm. things that I've learned as far as hiring people is to still, even though you're desperate and I I mean, we were desperate. (laughs) Like there was one night when I called her and I was just like, we're going to have to close on Mondays. We're not because we don't have staff. We can't have everybody working six days a week for more than one week. Like that's it. You can't do that because you can't burn your people out. Yeah. If you're going to, you need to be standing right next to them. And that's what we did. We worked just as many hours as everybody else. We cleaned the same things they were cleaning. We worked the same shift that they were working. So they knew like, we're not going to do this to you while we're sitting at home watching TV. We're in this together and we're going to get through it. Um, is just stay keep hiring the kind of people that fit your team even though you're gonna have to enter because the types and i'm there's a lot of people who are applying for jobs now who have make it made a choice to not work since march of 2020 um and when you hire in our experience, when those people are hired, there may be 10% chance they're going to stay. I, because I think that after you haven't worked for a while, it's hard to go back to work in a restaurant. It's not easy work. Your knees are going to hurt. You haven't stood up for 10 hours in a while. I mean, it's not it's not easy work. So it's you still have to be picky about the people that you're hiring. Do they fit the team? Because you don't want to, the people who have been there with you through it, you don't want to put somebody toxic with them and then they're just like, why did I go through all of this to, for this to happen? Like, Mm -hmm. so you have to let them know, like, we're going to do this with you. Like we're here with you. Um, the other thing is on, I did change the indeed ad. Um, it used to say so much about who we were. This is us. And we've been in, you know, Texas monthly's top 40 breakfast restaurant, blah, blah, blah no one cares about that anymore. Now, generally speaking, and again, broad strokes, people want to know what you can do for them. What is it that you're going to do for me when I work for you? Fair enough. I mean, it's their job. This is a give and take. You're giving your work. We're giving you what you want from it. So I did rewrite the Indeed ad, in the second that I rewrote it that said, you know, this is our starting wages. This is how we do raises. And we close at three so that you can be home for dinner, blah, 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 started getting hits immediately. And I just had to take down everything that was about us and put up everything that was about everybody else. And at that moment, that closing on Monday was, we weren't going to close on Monday. It was like, okay.
0: That's proof of what some other restaurants are learning. In fact, too many are learning the hard way that uh, you really do as an owner need to be mindful of the quality, not just of compensation, but the quality Mm -hmm. of work environment. Um, the, the quality of your work atmosphere, the positive culture that you're developing. Those are the things that you're now saying. Um, so this way they know what they're getting into. Um, they know what's expected. They know what they're going to be uh, earning. Um, so, yeah, my compliments to you. That I, I think other independents need to follow suit to realize that, yeah, this, this really is a team effort. Yeah. And owners and managers need to look at their staff that way.
2: Well, and we had always, it had been there um, always. We just weren't, you know, letting our community know as much that this who we are um, in terms of the, you know, the Megatron family in the back. And, you know, we have brothers and sisters and boyfriends and girlfriends and roommates and cousins and in-laws that work for it. I mean, it, it's, you know there's not six degrees between somebody it's like two or three yeah. um within our whole restaurant so when once we put like kind of more of that on mm-hmm. the advertisements mm-hmm. and and more of uh the hard stuff that holly was talking about
3: that's when we got more of the hits of the people that and if you set up an ad answer back immediately yeah like i for maybe two weeks I would say when I had the all of the ads running if I was home eating dinner and I got a hit I messaged them immediately you cannot play around you cannot be like I'll do this later it has to be right then because they can go as everybody's seen their signs everywhere $300 signing bonus and $15 to work at KFC so I mean that's your competition and Independent businesses can't afford to pay fifteen dollars an hour in signing bonuses because yes, it does it does get really busy when everybody wants to get out of the house, but that's gonna stop and we're gonna get back to normal and you're gonna have a really, really, really expensive kitchen if you don't hire people that wanna be there because you you're giving them a good place to work. Mm-hmm.
1: That's great advice. I, you know, the flexibility, I believe, of your concept has got to be really attractive. Um, uh, I don't know what it was like in Texas, but I imagine like everywhere else you had people who had to go home and and take care of their kids while their kids couldn't go back into school. And now they've got to kind of figure out what am I going to do with child care and so forth? Seems being able to get out of there at three o'clock could be a real game changer for a lot of people.
3: Definitely. I think yeah. definitely. And I, and I never, to be honest with you, like I never realized that because I'd never, I just never thought about it like that until I had to sit down and, and we were talking and it's like, what are the reasons that people want to work here? And to quantify that, it's like, Oh yeah. Besides just being like a, a nice place to work, this is like a really good gig for family people, for mm-hmm. It's not that restaurant that you're going to work at Chili's and get home at two in the morning. It's 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 good work. And I don't think we'd ever said that out loud, not to ourselves, much less to anyone else. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I get it. You're so close to it. You accept it as this is this is the way life is. Um, But uh, objectively speaking, it's it's a pretty big deal from my perspective.
0: Well, for all of us in the industry, thank you so much for doing what you did to go through the tough first few years to go from being overwhelmed to making it work. And now you've gone from the uh, surviving to the thriving and that's well-deserved. Any parting philosophies or things that you've learned through this process that you think uh, the listeners uh, might need to know before we box it up and take it away?
2: um, I mean, definitely stick together Uh, like there is no need for restaurants to be like kind of battling each other or anything It, it it will only help everyone when we all share you know what we learned during the pandemic and and you know hey call this vendor they can help you out with this uh issue that you're having or you're having this shortage this person has it um One of the things that we went through so much was we just felt so alone when everything first happened. and it was, you know, nobody knew anything. Our government officials that have never been in the, any restaurant business were shutting us down and dictating things for us and that were just not like not feasible at
3: all. As simple and as in the beginning, we didn't even know what what sanitizer, killed the virus so we're looking up chemical sheets online because even something that simple wasn't put out by Mm -hmm. anybody nobody did that because nobody knew it's not anybody's fault everybody was just trying to catch up but it's like we we should tell everybody that you shouldn't sit here and be like we're gonna be the only restaurant that has clean tables it's like no everybody needs to know what that chemical is like it just and I will say that Dave Chang and the Mama Fuku group did a great thing during the pandemic and they put together a comprehensive um, training system for employees and in restaurants and they gave it away. They gave it away for free. And I just, I admire that. It's, that's what we should be doing. We're not enemies with each other. We shouldn't want another business to suffer, even if you move in next door to them and they make eggs. Just make better eggs. It's like, it's not about negativity. It's about sharing and taking care of each other because we aren't in the easiest industry. And we have been, this industry has been tested and scapegoated through this entire thing. And if we don't take care of each other, everyone's proven that they're not going to take care of us. We're out here. We need to take care of each other. Um, and not that anybody or any entity of enemies, it's just like, it, as we've all learned, just, you kind of have to be a little bit self-reliant and a little bit of like, okay, I'm not just going to sit back and not know what that chemical is. All right, grab your computer. We're going to sit down for an hour and we're going to find you it. Like, like, you can't give up. Just, yeah. <laughs> so I uh, just, I feel yeah. like it's like, you can really do anything if you can run a restaurant if you can run a healthy business, that is a restaurant, you can do anything. I am just, I'm so impressed with the restaurant industry with like every, everybody that's helped us, everybody that's put out information, that's done that research. The TRA has been amazing. Restaurant.com has been amazing. It's like, it just, I don't know. It just, it just, Good stuff, good
0: people, yeah. Wise words, wise words. It is, it's a difficult enough industry to be successful in um, uh, if we're not at least willing to um, help each other out. Very, very good. Well, Megan Collins, Holly Scott with Meg's Cafe in Temple, Texas. Thank you so much for your words of wisdom and taking the time to share that with us and our listeners. I think for Barry and myself, it's time to wrap up and say thank you very much and for everyone, we hope to uh, catch up with you in the next episode right here on Corner Booth. Thank you for joining us on The Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.